episode five. <laughs> Is this episode five? Episode uh, five. Episode two. five. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Episode five. All right. Well, you know, we're here. Welcome back, everyone. Uh, new listeners, old listeners, moms, nice. dads, cousins, brothers, dogs, iguanas, whoever iguanas, it is. Yep. Yeah, yeah, you know, Arizona, they got iguanas there. I think so. <laughs> we, we don't have them up here. We have um, Gila monsters. Just kidding. It's Gila monsters. Oh, Calm down. All you native the, Arizonians, af- chill out. After the, the Gila River Casino. Yeah, um, and probably Gila what it's named after. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we stopped there for McDonald's on the Mexico mission trip. Oh, really? Yeah, there's dude. a there's a McDonald's in Sedona that uh, is mm. blue. Have you been to that one? I yeah, think I, think you, I think you tried casting we went, out we a go- demon once there. Did I? <laughs> yeah, dude. We went on a trip to what? What's the bridge that everybody goes to? De- oh, it? Devil's Devil's Bridge. Oh, yeah, Devil's Bridge. And then some dude was like talking to himself in a stall, and you're like, "Bro, I think there's a demon in there. I'm gonna try to cast it out." I was like, no. <laughs> "It was wild." Okay. All right. Well, that's what happened. Blue anyway, McDonald's. Ryan, Blue McDonald's. Um, recently, Ryan, you posted a little Instagram poll asking people about their favorite. Uh, quick trip or gas station snacks yes. what was the most profound uh, finding you had from your study uh, from my study dude um, here's what it was gas station cracker slash spray cheese sandwiches have a special what? place for me that's one of my friends um, loco <laughs> mocha monster and checks mix slash sour gummy worms what a palate dill pickle surprisingly just, pretty just popular one dill pickle one <laughs> dill pickle probably from like one of those bags like the bag dill pickle where you're like yo people buy these yeah <laughs> i've never do. i've honestly never seen that and then i have one of my newest freshmen who's just an eighth grader she uh responded trolley or any candy parentheses duh and I was like, cool, cool. But just asking what your favorite snack is. Duh. Idiot, and then my favorite, Ryan. Yeah. Come my on. Favorite, obviously trolleys. Obviously. Duh. And this one's from Blake Herman. Shout out to Blake. Seeds. Shout out Block A. And a scissor Bev. What is a scissor Bev? I think, I think scissor refers to back to like sipping on scissor. But like a really badly ratioed carbonation to sugar, like fountain soda, that happens this, every once in a while. <laughs> this is like one of those Herman sayings. So you're just like, I'm not sure what that means. But the more you're around them, you start to learn you the get language. It. And then it's last like but not scissor. least, Kale, who made who made our our um, artwork for the yeah. podcast, and is hopefully making a Super Saiyan artwork. Mm-hmm. Um for us mm-hmm. what do you say bepis bepis what is that <laughs> it's not pepsi it's bepis <laughs> just go look it up okay just go look i it don't up. all i get is a donut sometimes at a gas station a maple one right or yeah or why do you get maple, going on long why drive. don't you get white donuts or uh chocolate donuts because i'm maple dog <laughs> i'm more of an olive honestly yeah. Actually, I've been getting pretty tan recently just because right. it's it's sunny here in Seattle. Wow. Um, so I'm going to really be flaring up my Sicilian olive uh, reflections. Nope, not that's not the right word. What's what's the complexion? <laughs> there it is. <laughs> anyway, um, 
Speaking of neighborhoods and gas stations and a color, I guess, um, we're talking about ghetto neighborhoods, Ryan. And we're going to talk about broken window policing, for those of you who may know or do not know what that is. But Ryan, when often when you hear about like a ghetto neighborhood, you hear some of the, the slogans that kind of go around that where it's like, well, neighborhoods aren't racist. People just want to live in nicer places. You know, it's not... <laughs> You know, it's it's not ghetto because there's black and brown people there. It's just right. you know, it's just ghetto. It, like it's just ghetto, and it's like, well, what is ghetto? It's just ghetto. Like you you know what you know when you see it. You know what I mean. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and this is like the same way when like people drive through these neighborhoods or walking in these neighborhoods, or you're in a bad part of town. Well, bad part of town, right? Yeah. Um, so Ryan, when you when you hear ghetto neighborhoods or hear some of these things, what is the the first thoughts that come up within you? Yeah, ghetto neighborhoods to me, it, it always like I just I just think about low income. I think about um, probably a lesser, like no HOA at least in Arizona, you know, because I haven't really been to too many hoods in my life. Um, but out here, at least in Mesa, I just think of of that, and I think of largely Hispanic. I think of largely uh, brown uh, out here in Mesa, Arizona, and and black a little bit. Um, and then I even think too, like man, if I go to University and 80th right here in my own uh, city, it's like all trailer parks. Hmm. Um, and so it's funny because people will be like, the ghetto is more like black brown. Yeah. Yeah. But then trailer park is a different thing because they're white. Uh, it's kind of like this weird um, subconscious thing. But then when I think about ghetto neighborhoods, I think it's just it's just a it's just a um, a fabrication. Like ghetto hoods were made up just like uh, the Jews in the ghettos. Uh, yeah. Ghettos got made up over here in, in America, you know, um, uh, contrary yeah. to popular belief. A lot of what happened after World War II with Federal Housing Act and um, with, uh, you know, local and state real estate agencies or sorry, local real estate agencies and HOAs and neighborhoods um, and the color of law. Richard Rothstein just talks about. Just that concept of blockbusting, where you would raise prices in in neighborhoods to make white people move into them, uh, hmm. and then push black people out of those neighborhoods, and then make a huge profit uh, by basically profiteering off of white flight. And so, so many of our neighborhoods, you know, without getting in too much detail, basically were made that way. They weren't. They didn't start off like supposing to be segregated and making ghettos, but like it was planned to put the strip club and the liquor store and the uh, hmm. low-income uh, plots; those those were all planned uh, by largely white federal, well, or almost all yeah. white federal agencies and and real estate brokers. So it's just weird, man. It's 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 complex, and that makes sense because I was recently looking at this stat um, from Duke Kwan and Gregory Thompson, uh, and we're going to talk about this more mm-hmm. in a reparations episode where 98% of federal subsidized loans between 1936 and I think 1968 went to white Americans. So mm-hmm. 98% went to white Americans. So again, Man. it's it's kind of one of these things where these things are planned. Um, I know for me with ghetto neighborhoods, that was actually the first thing, if we're going to talk about being woke, <laughs> you know, sure. which we talked about recently, the first thing that actually awoken, awakened, I don't know what the right verb is, uh, me too. Maybe yeah. some internalized subconscious racism was ghetto, like the word ghetto, ghetto neighborhoods, and it's because um, Ryan, you know Sunsplash, right? 
Yeah, dude. No Sunsplash. You, sun you know Peter Piper, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, dude. Those are two staples of our existence. Uh, so Sunsplash is a water park. Peter Piper is a uh, uh, older, like a middle school Chuck E. Cheese is how I like to, to yeah. frame it. Um, and we, mm-hmm. we have frequently both these places. But anyway, when I was about 18, 19, I remember thinking for some reason, like I didn't go to Sunsplash as much anymore. But the few times I went, I remember thinking like, man... I don't really care to go to Guns- Sunsplash anymore. It's kind of gotten ghetto. And that was just my, like my thought. Mm. And I'm like, ah, and Peter Piper, like, Peter Piper used to be like cool. It used to be the hub, like where we'd hang out, get to that buffet. But it's kind of gotten ghetto. Yep. And then I like, yeah. I finally asked myself, well, what even is ghetto? Why, why is it that? Why is it just like you have this internal, it's not even like, there's not like a description. It's just this internal gut feeling. And I realized it was exclusively because there was more uh, people from the Hispanic community at them. Like yep. that was the sub- way more Hispanic people <laughs> at both these places over the years. Yeah, and that's what I realized in my subconscious. It just it didn't think there's more Hispanic people here. It went to the second layer of that and just thought this place has gotten more ghetto, not because of the facilities, not because of the quality, but exclusively. Mm-hmm. Um, because I had prejudice uh, towards these people. And because, you know, when you ever think of ghetto neighborhoods, you think of, again, black and brown people. So when there's more black and brown people at these places than white people now, that place must turn ghetto. It's not going to be as nice. It's not going to be as safe, et cetera, et cetera. So that's, I mean, that's kind of like the opening. I mean, there's like, there's little things in my history and my racial history of like knowing, you know, when things got triggered or when things got brought up or when I kind of became aware of things. But that was probably the big one. That was like the kicker of like, oh, <laughs> like, oh, like that, that's in me the whole time. I would have said, I'm not, mm-hmm. I'm not that racist, you know, whatever. Um, but that was kind of the one. And I, I even think of like, I don't know if Ryan, have you seen the blind side? Uh, no, dude. I think there's a part of my like heart that just could not stomach that movie. So I never watched it. Yeah. Understandably. So, um, so basically in the blind side, for those of you who don't know the movie, it's about, uh, Michael Ower, um, who's a, who was a left tackle. I think, I don't think he is anymore, but it was a left tackle in the NFL and it's like his origin stories. Um, and basically in one scene, like Ower returns back, he's adopted by this white family basically, but he returns back to his old neighborhood and like runs into a gang, of course, you know, because mm. he's, he's a big black man, runs back to his neighborhood. Of course, he immediately runs into a gang. And he gets saved at the last moment by Sandra Bullock, uh, who comes in in her, like her suburban, um, and picks him up and takes him back to white suburbia to safety. And it's like this dramatic scene. And like even in there's other parts in this this film where like Ower's like negotiating his contract and doesn't know how to negotiate it. So like the literally the son, the white son of the family he's joined, negotiates his contract for him. Um, and there's just like a lot of this painted, which I think is how we view ghetto neighborhoods is just this painting of, or as this very instinctual physical creature, but he needs the assistance of this white intellectual suburban family to get him out of the ghetto and to get him into, uh, safety, security, prosperity, whatever. Mm-hmm. So it's just kind of, all it is to say, it's just kind of ingrained, um, in us in and how we view these neighborhoods and there's this one uh quote um from propaganda <laughs> our our dog we've we've probably quoted propaganda more than any other like historian <laughs> or oh, theologian sure. which he is kind of both those things i mean um, he's doing some of that work yeah of course um, and he was a history teacher right yep he was so it makes sense um but he has a song called inner city ptsd 
Um, mm. And in one of the lines, it says, who are you to judge us when you don't live among us? You should keep your mouth shut. <laughs> and that's what I feel like a lot of times with ghetto neighborhoods, like black and black crime, black fatherlessness. It's one of those things where people will point to that or say that about a community either you live in or black and brown communities live in. Um, and there's just all this judgment when we as white Christians refuse, refuse to live anywhere other than a nice gated white community. Yeah. Uh, so Ryan, when, when, when you're interacting, just, I mean, you're in Northeast Mesa, you're not in quote unquote, the ghetto, uh, with where you're at, whatever. Um, what, what, like, what, what should we be thinking about? You know, we're white Christians. Maybe most people on this podcast have never quote unquote lived in a rougher neighborhood, maybe. Um, how, how should we view the, these neighborhoods? What kind of posture should we take towards them? Obviously, we'll talk about scripture and things after that, but even just like concretely, you know, anecdotally, yeah. what should we be thinking about these? Yeah, I think um, uh, when it comes to, quote, ghetto neighborhoods, th- this is a hard question, I think, for me to even, for me to even uh, dive into. You know, so much of my experience has been in white middle-class neighborhoods my mom literally part of her excuse for moving me out here was hey like we don't want you growing up in the hood uh Mm -hmm. so i have very few memories of of the hood my grandma lives in virginia beach like a very black populated place but they all have homes like it like i'm talking like two-story homes that are probably worth six hundred thousand dollars now like in virginia beach uh and and so for me my posture, I don't really think, Colton, I can tell white Christians how to posture their hearts because I think I'm redoing that work in myself too. Um, hmm. I think a lot of my parents just coming from that boomer generation and, and not wanting to have a lot of harder conversations about the sociopolitical realities, but just kind of want to grind and like get through. Um, my, I remember having a few black friends that were in a similar economic bracket to me uh, and my family when I was younger out here in Northeast Mesa, but, uh, friendships never really lasted. It wasn't really, um, it it didn't really seem like our families were going to like stay as friends. In fact, I think I had more white moms try to be my mom's friend than black moms, or I don't know how Hmm. that worked. Uh, and so there's that, there's just the suburbs and the amount of work that everybody has to do to maintain their mortgages out here. (laughs) When I go to when I go to the quote hood or like places without HOA and and friends there, I had a, a couple friends that lived in like a lower income neighborhood behind my neighborhood uh, hmm. growing up, and it was it was definitely different because you know toys and and bikes and scooters would just be left outside. Um, not brought inside. Like my dad would be so mad if I left my bike outside in the front yard, you know? Hmm. Uh, but not in this neighborhood, like right behind my, all I had to do was hop my literal backyard fence to hop into this, uh, lower income hood with no HOA when mine was adjacent to it with HOA, Hmm. um, right on Brown and Ellsworth, which is like still eight, five, two Oh seven. It's fascinating. Yeah. And so, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I'm still doing some of that work myself um, to to go, okay, why do you feel familiar but also different? Because I never felt out of place in that hood, but I did always feel confused. Hmm. 
it's it's a weird thing. I got I got to do some work. I don't when I drive through hoods in Phoenix, even like heading out to GCU or, um, man, if I ever go and get to visit my my family back in NYC in Queens, it doesn't feel out of place for me, but it also isn't my experience. Hmm. Um, so yeah, that's yeah, that's hard. Yeah. I don't know what to say. <clears throat> well, we don't need to have all the answers. <laughs> yeah, and like we're still in process. So that, I mean, that makes sense. I, I think there's. There's just a dynamic of, and we'll, we'll talk about this more at the end as we offer more of a biblical, pastoral, Christian response. Um, but I think with, with ghetto neighborhoods at the end of the day, like I think in summary of what we kind of talked about as we move to broken window policing, but yep. basically like learn the history of maybe why, like, you know, even you know that question you have of like, okay, I can literally hop this fence, but then it's kind of a different neighborhood. There's no mm-hmm. age, like why? why? When, when city, mm-hmm. cities didn't arise out of nowhere, they were all planned. Exactly. Right. Um, yes. So just asking those questions ourselves, we're not here to tell you every neighborhood or whatever, whatever, but basically we need to ask ourselves the questions, learn the history of your city, of your neighborhood. Um, and we'll talk at the end pastorally about what to do in the future. But I think looking back is, is a big first step. But I think we want to talk about Ryan and I don't really brief you on this at all. So for you That's listening, right. Ryan's getting it <laughs> right as y'all getting it. Uh, but I think connected to ghetto neighborhoods is this idea of broken window policing. Ryan, have you heard of that that term before? Uh, no, but I have an idea of where it's gonna go. Okay. Basically, anytime a window breaks, yeah, riots. Okay, um, yeah. No, that's. I mean, that's actually exactly something. it. So, uh, it's, it's called broken window policing because there was this hypothesis back in the day um, that one br- broken window would lead to scores of broken windows. So, like, if someone just broke one window in a car, all cars on that road would have their windows broken into. Almost basically, Whoa. crime encourages crime. Um, okay. And so basically broken window policing, it, broken window neighborhoods is signaling that like the breakdown of the neighborhood social control. Basically, again, like what you said, when okay. one window breaks, the riot breaks loose kind of thing. It's that's the whole idea. Dude, um, you remember that one police officer in Minnesota last year? Yeah. He whipped out his nightstick and broke a window in Minneapolis. Yeah, like an auto shop or something. Yeah. Like broke all just, of them. Yeah. Whoa. So... We can, we're going to talk about more of that in a second, a uh, little bit. Um, <clears throat> but basically, <clears throat> sorry, I got some some phlegm. Um, but okay. neighborhoods become vulnerable to criminal invasion. Uh, as soon as there's some crime, it just leads. It's kind of like a snowball effect. So in essence, um, Kellen and Wilson, the people that kind of coined this term and started this type of policing, argued that danger is looming everywhere. And everywhere, people's disorderly impulses needed to be repressed or else. Like, basically, we have to stop people from joining in on violence, destruction, and crime. And so they took that theory, um, also called maintenance policing, and then put it into the police force. And so basically, it was a tactic that propelled the entire generation of policing that sought to crack down on, like, minor quality of life infractions as a way to stem violence, i.e. we're going to come down harder on a broken window because that will stop prostitution or drug dealing. We're going to come down harder on this minor infraction so that we can catch the bigger ones. Um, so that's the whole idea. Um, and polices across the country have taken this up like New York city, Los Angeles. Um, right. this has kind of led to aggressive use of like stop and frisk, aggressive use of summons, misdemeanor arrests. Um, and I'll, I'll post an article that explains more about what this is, but think of Ferguson, Ryan. Uh, yep. I'm sure you're aware of Ferguson. Man. And, um, for those of you who don't know, Ferguson was kind of, was that, was that Michael Brown? That was Mike uh, Brown. Yep. Um, 
and that was that was probably one of the big i mean we had trayvon martin but that was one of the big first out in the streets mm-hmm. um blow up we had i mean obviously yeah, and the video evidence man that's changed everything yeah once you upload the video to twitter or facebook that yeah. like because we didn't see trayvon you know yeah yeah but we saw mike brown and it was like oh my goodness yeah and so that was I mean, obviously, America's had racial incidents forever, but I, I'd say around Ferguson was probably the precursor in some ways to what we saw in this last year in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and so look it up if you don't know the Michael Brown story. But basically, what happened after the like the protests, the riots, whatever you want to call it, is there was a federal report done by the Department of Justice for Ferguson because the black community basically like talked about over-policing. And they found that th- this is kind of their, their findings. So African-Americans made up about 67% of the population, but they accounted for 85% of their police department's traffic stops, 90% of their citations, and 93% of their arrests um, from 2012 to 2014. So that's the two years leading up to that. Um, In in this neighborhood, African-Americans were two times more likely to be searched during a a vehicle stop, um, but are 26% less likely to have contraband found on them during the search. So two mm. times more likely um, yep. to be searched than anyone else, but 26% less likely to have anything found in them. Um, mm. They are two times more likely to receive a citation, 2.37 times more likely to be arrested following a vehicle stop. Yeah. And it just keeps going. So the black yep. community had forced use against them at disproportionately high rates, accounting for 88% of all cases from 2010 to 2014 um, was involving a, a black uh, a person with a cop um and all 14 uses of force involving a canine bite was all against african-americans um more likely to Yikes, receive multiple man. citations during a single incident um receiving four or more citations on 73 occasions whereas non-african-americans received only four or more citations twice so think about that on a traffic stop ryan you you would get four or more citations that's happened 73 times to black people in this community it only happened two times to everyone else in the community. Um, and so I could just keep going about jaywalking charges, 95%, resisting arrests, all these things. And basically the whole idea is that there's this belief that Ferguson is a ghetto place, a ghetto neighborhood. And so we need to over-police on minor infractions, over-hit them there so that we'll stop the greater things. Um, but what, I mean, imagine what that is doing to that neighborhood, that society. Like when you have, you know, just getting pulled over on a vehicle stop and you're getting a misdemeanor for something that most people just get let off on, or most people don't even get pulled over at all for. Um, and this contributes to this cycle of keeping quote unquote ghetto neighborhoods in the condition they're in or worse, because then we over police them and it creates even far more problems um, because of the fines, the imprisonment, the loss of family, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So Ryan, when you hear all that, I'm sure you've uh, kind of been aware of that <laughs> um, and know of that. What? How does that kind of hit you? How does that relate to what you've seen? Um, and how does that maybe connect to just the reality of quote unquote ghetto neighborhoods? Yeah, I don't. Um, I don't see uh, the, I guess, same level of intentionality in a place like uh northeast mesa you know like i don't Hmm. see the swarm of policing out here yeah Yeah. but just let me go let me let me go to the closest quote hood that i that i can understand 
and you would understand this too. Yep. Apache Junction. Yep. Dude, the amount of sheriffs that I see and the amount of police that appear when I just go beyond Ellsworth and start heading towards um, Signal Butte or uh, Crisman. Um, let's just say that. Uh, if you guys don't live, obviously you guys don't, a lot of you don't live in Arizona, <laughs> but but the concentration of police in even lower income white neighborhoods that I'm seeing um, where there's a lot more uh, of of that is is still the same same uh, kind of idea. It's not the same exactly because it's not perpetuated by brown and black necessarily. But this idea yeah. of broken window policing is that send all of your resourcing, justify all the all of the ex military equipment that the police have bought, yeah. justify yeah. all the taxpayer dollars you're using on policing to keep these neighborhoods over policed. Um, yeah. And I think that translates. There, there's a lot more fear and a lot more. And we're going to talk about this in later episodes. But yeah, man, how that hits me is absolutely you. We've we've now militarized and 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 said from the beginning these are going to be hoods that are going to be bad. Yeah. And so yeah. we need to keep sending our resources to make these bad hoods stay bad, but not let the bad come out. Hmm. Um, and so by not letting the bad come out, just keep stopping the bad, even though we started this neighborhood as yeah. a problem. Well, and that's like um, that's the dynamic of you know, in city planning, whatever, let's yeah. say whatever the cause is, this neighborhood is lower income, struggles with yeah. some poverty, which naturally then leads to some crime. Well, then yeah. the solution is to over-police, which, yeah, that does probably stop some of the crime. That probably does stop some of the bad stuff, but doesn't alleviate the neighborhood out of yeah, bad no, into good. There's nowhere to go. It's, it's, that's it's, not a real solution. It's just a little bit of damage control. And if anything, you could probably argue that some of the damage control is actually doing more damage because of the over-policing. And again, me and Ryan, you can go to the other episode. We're not anti-police. We think police do a lot of good. We think uh, officers are brave, courageous, a lot of them, and they want to seek to help. But we just have to look at some of our structures and systems in place in the scope of policing um, that can be more utilized, maybe be other departments, maybe more better effectively used, maybe a more strategic way, a more thoughtful way, a more intentional way. Um, like, obviously, we're not saying that, you know, these neighborhoods don't need any police force, but it's just, are we actually seeking to better this neighborhood or just like plug up some holes of a leak, um, right. which seems like yeah. what they're doing and sometimes causing other leaks in the process? Yeah. And I think, and I think it does something to the psyche of the community. And it does something to the psyche of black and brown people. So I was—I don't know who tweeted this the other day, but and that idea of inner city uh, PTSD that Prop was talking about. Um, now I find my heart rate spiking anytime yep. there's a police officer anywhere, even though I'm in yeah. Northeast Mesa. And my—you know—I've been pulled over before, and it's like, is there? Uh, do you have weapons in your car? And I'm like, no. And they're like, are you sure? Like that always is something they ask me. I don't know why yeah. they ask me that. I'm oh, just kidding. Yeah, I do. But um, <laughs> I'm like, yeah, you know, dude, I'm driving in. I'm driving in Flagstaff with my seniors on like a senior retreat two months ago, and I was just started getting trailed by a sheriff, and I was like, okay, this is it for me. Like, it really wasn't gonna be it for me, but I did have an of extra course. student in my car, yeah, because no one told me that they were in the back of the trunk, and they were taking a nap. So that would have been catastrophic, because yeah. Um. Anyways, yeah. but there. That that in and of itself, my my headlight was broken the other night on my truck, and I didn't have time to fix it yet. And I saw three police officers drive past me, and obviously something bigger was happening. But I was like, man, if I get pulled over on, and the really wealthy 
part of the town, I was like, this could be it for me. Like, yeah, it's 11 o'clock. Oh, no. Like, I'm yeah. going to die. Um, and so I think that's also the thing we have to take into account with broken window policing is it just creates yep. reactive yeah, yeah. anxiety, which is only going to create more responses yeah, for exactly. misdemeanors and crimes and pullovers. Yeah. And it's escalating the tension. Escalating. Rather yeah. than uh, de-escalating it. It's, it's creating more fear, more paranoia. Rightfully uh-huh. so, unrightfully so, whatever it is, the over-policing causes more fear of police, which causes more resistance, which causes more, more tension. More uh, yeah. And so, yeah. Well, anyway, let's let's talk about the Bible. One last little quote here um, from or a stat from the Washington Post and Kaiser Family Foundation revealed that 53% of white evangelicals blamed poverty on a lack of effort. Um, compared to 64% of black Christians who attribute poverty more to circumstances rather than effort. So a complete flip um, in the stats. And when you think of ghetto neighborhoods, quote unquote, or you think of, you know, neighborhoods that need more policing, it's always with our white evangelical frame set, normally always blamed mostly on personal effort, personal problems, rather than again, like we were saying, looking at the city planning, looking at the history. Um, as we kind of transition to the Bible, one thing you can do um, and this is something you should do, is kind of do like a, a, a study of history uh, for your location, your neighborhood. There are principalities and powers uh, as Christians, we believe, that control cultures and geographical places, different things like that. So study the history of your town. Seattle has an extremely racist history, um, like profoundly. And there's like other aspects of it where it's still very segregated. But Seattle's, you know, viewed as this beacon of, you know, goodness or whatever it is in terms of race relations. It's, but we, when we're not aware of the principalities and powers that are at play, when we haven't studied the history of our town, we're just looking at things at surface level, we're going to miss uh, some of these things. Ryan, what about uh, for you as a Christian? How should we be viewing neighborhoods that are lower income that maybe have a little bit more poverty? Should we seek to flee away from them? Should we seek to only live in gay communities? Is it wrong to, as a Christian to want to live in a nicer, safer neighborhood? Um, for someone who's weighing right now, should I move somewhere that's lower income? Should I move to somewhere that's nicer so I feel more safe? Like as a Christian, how do you kind of weigh those things? Yeah, I think um, one thing you can you can do is just think what kind of relational um, connection to your neighborhood do you want? The thing about the hood and the thing about lower income communities is that it almost forces you to do shared parenting, shared resources, shared conversations. Um, you don't get the just drive into your driveway and close the door in your gated community and never talk to your neighbors kind of situation in the hoods. Like people know uh, other families, people know who's lived in that house down the street for. 30 years like people know whose grandson's kids best friend um came through that one time uh that's what i've seen uh uh when i would go to that neighborhood behind my neighborhood almost everybody knew each other and kids were friends because they talked to each other (laughs) and so one of the things you'll you'll hear about all the time is just uh how like man it's their fault and they need to really pull themselves up by their bootstraps or whatever to get themselves out of this poverty situation. But I think there's actually a lot more relational richness, uh, even though the hood is considered like, Oh, well, there's gang activity and uh, there's drugs. It's like, okay, there's uh, gang activity in suits and more expensive <laughs> drugs and, yeah. uh, you know, more expensive neighborhoods really. Uh, and so I think, um, I think 
you should start to think of, man, how do I want to be located in a place where Jesus might call me to hmm. share the gospel in my life um, hmm. with other people? And I think you'll have a lot higher success of sharing conversation in your life and the table in a lower income neighborhood than you will in a gated community uh, hmm. where the income is um, very high and where people don't have time or energy to even talk to their neighbors. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree with that. I've had a lot of these conversations with, you know, young young millennials, mid, mid-age millennials of like, okay, we want to be racially aware. We want to seek social, racial equality. Um, well, one of the biggest things you can do is where you live. Like choosing where you live determines your neighbors, determines your friends, determines your schools, determines your church maybe. Um, and so where you're choosing to live, it might be the biggest decision, the biggest maybe unthought of decision you make in terms of like right. these kind of dynamics. And so for me, uh, I mean, when I look at the scriptures and I see, you know, in 1 John three seventeen, it says that if anyone has the world's goods and sees a brother in need, but turns their heart against them, how does God's love abide in them? And when I look at the story of the Good Samaritan and thinking of just the dynamic of the Good Samaritan, where it's an enemy that helps um, the, the, the person that was hurting, I mean, it's a Samaritan. And so it's just that reality where Maybe I'm a little radical, uh, and I know <laughs> I've been told this before, but I'm just like, I think self-preservation, security, and comfort can never be the number one priority for a Christian in choosing where to do never. life. Um, never. It, it, maybe it's a part of the equation, sure. Um, I'm not I'm not saying you have to live in the, the most dangerous place in the world, but there's far too many Christians that make security and safety of where they live of utmost priority, and so then all they do is live amongst other people who share that same thing. And they're neglecting their uh, neighbors around them that they could help maybe with their higher income or they could help um, just with their love and, and generosity and hospitality. And so that's just something to think of um, for you who are listening. Where you live matters. Um, ghetto neighborhoods are a construct. Uh, <laughs> yes, there's there might be more crime. Yes, there might be more things. But at the end of the day, like these are still humans. They're still people with stories, with dreams, uh, with families. Right. And uh, they're not just people who just messed up their whole lives and chose necessarily to live in this place. Um, so overall, just have compassion, like everything. We don't have all the answers. We, I mean, we can't even, we're still processing our own uh, feelings mm-hmm. and thoughts and subconscious. Um, but mostly it's just like, stop blaming people at, as your first response and just start having compassion first. And then we can talk through the issues after that. Amen. All right. Well, we'll see you on the next one. 